If you're visiting Redeemer this morning, I want to welcome you. And my name is Rob Heron, and I'm one of the many associate pastors here at Redeemer. We're continuing a series on the second part or section of the book of Psalms. The Psalms functioned for God's people as a worship book to help shape the way they responded to God and his promises in the midst of suffering and in the midst of their sin. More than anything, the Psalms point us more clearly to God's character as our creator and redeemer, his goodness. Here at Redeemer, we believe that the Bible is centrally about the good news, what God and his goodness has done through Jesus Christ for us. Because we have this good news, we are free to have our reality checked, even in harsh ways. Psalm 49 appears and sounds harsh. It's a harsh reality check. But because the Bible is a unified whole, it in the end points us more clearly to see the goodness of God through Jesus. So if you would, turn in your bulletins to Psalm 49 as I read. Hear this, all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches... Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names." Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast's. That perish. This is the wisdom and word of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. Even when it is a bitter pill to swallow, we trust your character to see that in the end it is pointing us more clearly to yourself, who you are as the worthy Lord of this world, that you are completely worthy of our worship and nothing else in this world can save us or deserves our worship. Jesus Christ, I pray that you would be clear as we look at your word and Holy Spirit, apply it to our hearts so that we might be set free to glorify you more. In your name, amen. Arguably, the most interesting individual in sports history is Mike Tyson. 
Mike Tyson is a boxer, and he gained fame in the late 1980s and became the world heavyweight champion. Alongside his ability to pulverize his opponents in the ring mercilessly, he was also known and gained notoriety for his seemingly unparalleled confidence, at least outwardly. Here's a few snippets of things that he would say to the press. He said, I want to brutalize and steal their souls about his opponents. He said, I am the most ruthless conqueror who ever lived. Pretty bold words. In his confidence, he believed that his fame, his success, and his life in luxury would, live, would last forever. And this led him to a life of reckless spending. That over a course of not too many years, he spent $30 million and declared bankruptcy in 2003. He spent $4.5 million on cars, $3.5 million on clothes and jewelry, $140,000 on two Bengal tigers, $125,000 on their trainer. He spent, I think, over half a million dollars on a birthday party and $2 million on a bathtub. It was absurd. It's highlights the absurdity of Mike Tyson's story. What I find a lot more interesting is the -the under-the-surface account that he gives in his autobiography that for some reason I decided to read. (laughs) And he tells there the story of why he started boxing in the first place. It was because he was afraid. There were neighborhood bullies that would terrorize him, and he decided to start training as a fighter. And he says at the beginning of his life, I was so insecure, so afraid. I was so traumatized from people picking on me when I was younger. And that feeling sticks with you for the rest of your life. Then in his downward spiral, he writes again, I was so scared of loss, so afraid to be alone. Tyson was foolishly confident That everything he had would last forever and give him all the meaning and value, love and purpose that he longed for. He was ignorant. But on a deeper level, he was simply afraid. Afraid of what it would mean for his life and for him if he did not have those things. Tyson might have a somewhat absurd story, but in the end it's a starkly human story. We tend to be foolishly confident that the things that this life offers, a name comfort, pleasure, that it's going to last forever and give you exactly what you want to make you exactly who you want to be. We're ignorant that they will not last. That you don't have the power to keep them in the end and they will not change your reality. But even more than ignorant, foolish confidence, all of us are afraid. We fear what it means if we lose these things. Who are you if you do not have great name and relationships and money. Who are you without these things? Are you lovable? Are you valuable? Does your life have meaning and purpose? It seems like the answer from the perspective of this life is, no, I, I, I need those things. And we continue to live in fear. The wisdom that Psalm 49 gives us requires a, an obedient response, which is this, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. But why and how? I want to show from Psalm 49 how this command to do not be afraid is grounded in three things, three headings. 
the end, loss, and cost. End, loss, and cost. So first, the end. If you look here at Psalm 49 and verse 1, the psalmist makes it very clear that his wisdom is not just for Jewish people, but for all inhabitants of the world. And this wisdom, it speaks an answer to a riddle, he says in verse 4. And this riddle appears to be the feeling of fear that God's people have when they look out and they see the wicked, God's enemies, and they have more wealth than God's people do. The wicked are getting richer and richer, and God's people are getting poorer. And the question arises, who am I? If these people, God, that don't love you, if they have more, are you with me? God, do you love me? And the psalmist first answers this question of fear by pointing to the end. He says in verse 10, For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Rich and poor, strong and weak, wise and foolish, their end is the same. And that's death. Death is the end that is inevitable in this life. But not just that, but that death is not a glorious end. He writes in verse 12, Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. Pomp here means honor. It's a man in his greatest pose of honor and dignity. Picturing a man with a crown on his head and a robe on his shoulders. This man in the end will die just like an animal. Death is the end, period. It's not a glorious end. This seems like a bummer. This seems like a cause to despair. But the psalmist says in verse 5, Why should I be afraid? This seems to be the grounds for him to say, I will not be afraid, though I see other people with more than I have. Stephen Colbert, uh, when he was still the host of the Colbert Report, he was interviewing New Testament scholar and skeptic Bart Ehrman. And they were having a fun but somewhat heated discussion about Airman's views about who Jesus is. Airman does not believe that Jesus is or was the divine Son of God and that Jesus himself didn't teach that, but it was an invention of the early church. Colbert is a Roman Catholic and he doesn't agree with Airman. By the end of the conversation, it was clear they were not going to agree with one another. And Colbert, with a smile on his face, says, Here, why don't we both die and we'll find out who's right? I'm not recommending that as a response in arguments, but I think that Colbert here is glimpsing something that the psalmist teaches us, which is this. Death is the impartial end for all of us, right or wrong, smart or foolish, strong or weak. But in the end, both of these men will die, and then the answer will become clear. Because of that, Colbert felt that this conversation wasn't a matter of life or death for his own confidence. Because death is the end for all of us. Death is the impartial end. All of us here at Redeemer, whether you're the smartest or not, you're the strongest or not, youngest or old, no matter how much money you have, in the end, your life will move toward death. It will end with death. Until Jesus returns, that is where you are going. No matter how much 
of a name you have for yourself, no no matter how much you have in your bank account, you will die. Death is the impartial end. And not just that, but that from the perspective of this life, death ends and it's a confirmation that this life didn't matter all that much. Your death, from the perspective of what our bare eyes see, it's no different than that of an animal. You die and you go into the ground and you begin to decay. But the psalmist teaches us that because death is the end, with this view that we look and we see that death is coming, that we are not to fear death. The reason is this, is that the end is supposed to teach us something about life itself. If we look at the end and we see no, no in itself that life doesn't have some special significance just from what our bare eyes see, from what we can get through money or fame or through relationships, just by themselves, then we can't look for meaning and value and love and purpose just from life itself, life bare by itself. And the, why this is so significant is that for so many of us, for all of us, life sometimes looks like the arena of our fulfillment. There's a, life is the window, and then when it shuts, there was your opportunity to find the happiness, the meaning, and the value that you've wanted. And if you don't get it, then that's it. That's the end. You have one shot to pick the right job, to pick the right spouse, to pick the right school. And if you mess it up, then it's over got one shot. But the psalmist says, no, death is the end. And if you're looking at life itself, this life is not the arena of fulfillment. It won't happen for you. You will not find ultimate fulfillment in this life itself. And this is also significant because we're in the age of FOMO. Fear of missing out. You look at other people and they seem to have the best vacations and they seem to have more than you, more, more value, more fulfillment. And the psalmist is saying, no, you are free from the fear of missing out. You can rejoice when other people have more than you because life is not the arena of your fulfillment. It ends. So that's the first thing. Life ends. But secondly, loss. You can look at verse Six, and the psalmist here is referring to those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of the riches. What's, what's going to happen to them? What happens to all that we gain in this life that we could boast of? And the psalmist says in verse 11 that those who have land named after themselves, that their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations Though they called lands by their own names. Then in verse 17, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. Put simply, you can't take it with you. At death, all that you gain in this life, all of that wealth, all of those, even relationships, they're stripped from you. You don't take them with you. And again, that seems like a bummer. But for the psalmist, again, this is a reason, this is grounds to not fear. In 2011, a tsunami hit the coast of Japan, and it killed hundreds of thousands, or sorry, it killed 15,000 people and displaced hundreds of thousands of people, caused billions of dollars in damage, and many, 
Scores of thousands, when the storm hit, immediately fled. What is really interesting is that scores of people delayed their escape to return to their homes to try to get their most valuable possessions. That one woman, when the storm hit, she went back to her house to get her cat. And if you're a cat person, maybe you can understand that more than I can. Um, One man returned to his home to collect his most valuable tea. If you're a tea person, maybe you can understand that more than I can. I'm a coffee person. Both of them were swept into the ocean as a storm hit, returning to their home to take what they loved with them. Both fortunately, amazingly, survived. In ancient Egypt, it was the practice of pharaohs to be buried with many of their slaves who were alive before they were buried. And the pharaohs would have their servants put clothes and weapons and jewelry, even food, into their tombs with them. The assumption was, you'll need it for the afterlife. You can take it with you. And clearly, when these tombs were discovered and opened up, and ah, there's all the weapons and the clothes there, didn't happen. They lost it. They lost it all. At death, each one of us will be stripped of everything that we've gained in this life. Your degree, the letters after your name, they will not follow you. Your bank account will not follow you into the dark. And even if you invest and save money for your family, which is wonderful, of course we should make wise decisions about our money, Of course, you should pursue education. But even for your family, it will not follow them into the dark. Most of us will not be remembered long after our deaths. But even if your name is remembered like Alexander the Great, the enjoyment of that recognition will not go with you into death. You lose it. It leaves you. But the good news is this. Is that... Because of this, God's people, we are free from the fear of what life offers. And here we need to expand our understanding of what fear is. Yes, it's trembling before something, but it's also awe before something. Reverence of something. That we are free from the awe of what this life offers. That when we pursue a job that is enjoyable and that we think we can be successful in, That so often we are in awe of this pursuit. It consumes us and can even destroy family relationships. That in the pursuit of a romantic relationship, which is good, you can be so consumed in awe of what you believe it will give you. That value, that purpose to make you lovable. That it will consume you and destroy your joy. But when we see that death strips us of these things... That life is not the arena of our fulfillment. We are free from the fear of what this life offers. You can pursue these things with open hands before God. But also we're free from the fear of losing these things. I had a vacation pretty recently and I realized halfway through that I was angry. And I was resentful that I knew the week would end. The halfway through I was resentful that I would have to go back to work. And be here with you. And I'm just kidding. <laughs> and I, I was spoiling what I, was, what I had in front of me. That I was fearful of losing what life was offering me in that moment. I couldn't even enjoy it. When my friends who are 
missionaries or RUF interns, they send me letters asking for support. My initial reaction is anger because they're stealing from me what life has offered me, the grounds of my confidence. Then I might give, but I might give begrudgingly. But with the view that life is ending and that the things that you gain in this world will be stripped from you, you might give freely. You might give freely of your time. You might live more freely with yourself because it's not going to go with you. Of course, invest, make wise decisions, but know this, it will not go with you. Do not be afraid. It will not go with you. Do not be afraid. But to really tie this together, we have to see the cost. We've seen the end, we've seen the loss, but also we must look at the cost because it teaches us not only not to fear, but to whom we are to give our fear and our awe. You look at verses 7 through 9. The psalmist teaches us here the truth about our ability, our power to pay the cost that is ultimate. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. The word ransom means a payment that stands in the place of someone, much like we use the word today. The psalmist's point is this, that no one can pay the ransom to free another from death. No one can pay the cost that would free himself from death. He says in verse 7, no one can give to God this payment. God alone is the one who has the power to pay that cost. Not you. You do not have the power. You don't have what it takes. You don't have the possessions that you would need to pay the cost of sin. The penalty of sin, which is death. Not just death and life ending, but eternal death. Separation from the God who is himself the source of value and meaning and love and purpose. You can't pay it. And because of this, the psalmist laments again in verse 20. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Man in his pomp without understanding. What are we to understand? My wife Mary Lee and I just had our first child, a son named Robert. And so far it's been, and I imagine it will continue to be, a crash course in helplessness. Certainly, my son is a manifestation of helplessness. So far he seems unable to regulate his sleep schedule or feed himself or change himself or refrain from certain actions. I'm not very clear on the timeline, but I feel like he needs to pull his weight a little bit more than he has been. It, honestly, has, that's pretty obvious and trivial. It's been a crash course in my own helplessness. One, the testing of my patience, but also there's been a new level of fear for me when I watch him sleep, or even in, in the, the good moments of enjoying him, I'm afraid. And I realize that I'm afraid because I, of course, can, I can clothe him and I can even affect his character and much about him. But I am powerless 
to ransom his life. I'm powerless to change his heart or to direct his reality, to direct his fate. I can't do any of that. And that has scared me. And I think it scares me because I am so used to thinking that I am in control of that. I have what it takes to pay the cost for my own life. That I can live a life that's meaningful and valuable. And of course God will accept what I do because I'm meaningful and valuable and the things I offer are are good. But this has been a reminder as I look at him that I can't pay that cost. Not for him. and Certainly not for myself. I can't pay the cost. And for each one of us, the truth is this, that none of us can pay the cost to ransom ourselves from sin and the penalty of death. We are afraid of this life and all the things that are in front of us and all of the things we're pursuing, the things we want to be successful at. And we're afraid of losing the things we have, the relationships. We're afraid of losing the love of others. But in the end, deep down, my guess is that it is a cover-up for the deeper fear that we cannot save ourselves. There's no amount of value and meaningfulness that we can wrench out of ourselves and give back to God that would right the relationship, that would make right the way that we have loved this life and loved the things of this world more than we have loved Him, alienating ourselves from Him. That all that fear in the end is a way to cover up that deeper fear that we know that we just can't do it. We can't save ourselves. We can't make ourselves right. That's the truth. And that's wisdom. And so, God's people, we are to fear God who alone has the power to pay the cost. We are to fear him as the one who has more power than you do and more power than all all the things that you and I so desperately fear and love. But there's more than that. There's more than just fear and trembling. You read in verse 15, the psalmist writes, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, which is the grave, for he will receive me. The psalmist, his grounds for saying, do not be afraid, is this. God, who can pay the cost, he will. He will pay the cost, the ransom for your life. And for all those who place trust in him. And that now he has paid the cost. That this psalm points forward to the time where God himself would come. And give us eternal life so that death is not the end for his people. That all those in Jesus Christ would not know death as the end. Not eternal separation from him as the end. But eternal life with him in fellowship with him. To know all the meaning and value. To be called his sons and daughters. That we would lose everything that this world offers us. That we would forsake it before him. So that we would gain the riches of knowing him as our father who loves us. Who says to us, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I'm with you. So the question this morning, where are you afraid? 
Where in your mind, where in your heart are you afraid? Afraid that you've made such a wreck of your life that there's no fixing it. Afraid that you missed the window of opportunity and now your future is a life of emptiness or hopelessness. Fear that you will lose something you dearly love. Fear that the money you have in your account is not enough and it's not going to be enough when you get to retirement. And all these fears, and all these fears are real. And so many of these fears, I don't understand the way you understand them. But the promise is the same. God has paid the ransom for your sin, the ransom for your life, so do not be afraid. Death is not the end. When you lose, you win. And you don't have to pay the cost. You will not miss out in this in this life, you will not miss out on fulfillment because he is your fulfillment. Jesus is your fulfillment. He is the one who loves you. He is the one that will give you everything that this world cannot give you. So do not be afraid. But that might sound like cheap talk. All of us in here are afraid. And if you're a father this morning, when your children are when they're afraid if a storm comes or something, anything scares them, how do you comfort them in their fear? You say, don't be afraid and go back to your room. Absolutely not. You go to them, you hold their hand, you embrace them, you meet them there in their fear, and you say, I am with you. Do not be afraid. That's what you do. You embody peace to them. You embody comfort to them. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He didn't just say, do not be afraid, but he came and he went to the end of death. Death on a cross. And he lost his own life. He lost everything for you. And he paid the cost that you could not pay so that you would know that he's with you. So do not be afraid. Let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, this is the truth and the truth sets us free. Uh, Holy Spirit, I do pray that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts so that we would not lose hope, that we would not be afraid of this life. There are terrors in this world, things that legitimately frighten us or that awe us because they're so heavy. And yet you tell us, do not be afraid. I pray that all of us this morning would see Jesus Christ more clearly as the embodiment of your comfort to us, that we would not fear but take hope in you. In your name, amen.